Welcome to this podcast from Field Partner International. This is one of a series of interviews posted on our website and YouTube channel, where we will hear from experienced missionaries sharing stories and insights from their journeys. We are an online community and resource for Christian missionaries working across cultures. You can visit our website, fieldpartner.org, which features free video courses, blogs, podcasts, sermons, and more. Subscribe to this channel, our YouTube channel, or Facebook page to stay updated on our latest resources. Hello everyone, I'm Christine Patterson, lifelong cross-cultural worker and trainer. I'd like to welcome you to this interview today with Brad Thurston. Brad is an old friend of ours and an early contributor to Field Partner, which you can see if you go across to the website and click under the courses section. Um, he, like me, was a missionary kid, uh, brought up in Lebanon, and then became a missionary himself and a sender of other missionaries who went out from Europe to all over the world. He and his wife, Jan, now live back in the States, but they continue to be involved in, with many workers across the globe. Okay, let's begin. Thank you, Brad. It's a Hi, pleasure Christine. to see you again. It's wonderful to be with you, even if, if, over, over the miles. <laughs> I know, I know. And in these strange times, have you been keeping well? Uh, yes, uh, we've uh, been kind of uh, locked down here in North Carolina, preach regularly. We are doing Bible studies and uh, we continue to do the ministry, a lot of it online uh, around the world. And we uh, interview and counsel with missionaries wherever they're at. So we haven't been lazy during this lockdown. <laughs> but we've been using the media methods as well in order to continue with the ministry that God has so graciously given us over the years. Right, that's great. So let's start at the beginning with the roots, your roots in Lebanon. What, it, what was it like growing up in Lebanon in the 1950s? And then tell us about your own coming to Christ and your own journey um, into missions after that. Well, you know, growing up in the Middle East, uh, I didn't know much of anything else. Um, I was uh, seven when we left the United States on board a ship that took us to, uh, first of all, to Italy. Then we caught another ship. And I, I remember we stopped in Alexandria, uh, Egypt, on our way to uh, Beirut. And we arrived in Beirut in the middle of a civil war. And uh, so <laughs> the first year that we were there, we were pretty well locked down inside a house. My dad would go out and buy the food. And um, I do remember that I had bed bugs. We had to fumigate my room. I, I remember that. Uh, we did buy a, uh, a Persian carpet that we could sleep on. And I also used that rug to take my little matchbox uh, cars to drive around on it. You know, that, but I, I, I didn't know anything else. And so um, I know that during the 10 years that we lived there, that I lived there anyway, there were like 12 uh, coup d'etats in Syria. So we would drive through Damascus going to Jerusalem for Easter or Christmas. And coming back, we would see all the tanks and everything because they just had a change of government. It just seemed to be normal that, you know, army people be walking around with machine guns and um, a very strange kind of way to grow up, being surrounded by uh, 
that kind of, uh, of an atmosphere. I remember being evacuated in the Six Day War. We had no idea that it was only going to be six days and lived through a lot of the tension, you know, that comes when countries are at war and Israeli jets were flying overhead and we had blackout at night and um, several of my friends and other students gathered around in a parking lot down below the apartment building we lived in. I watched them throwing Molotov cocktails at the British embassy. Um, it was kind of, uh, you know, full of tension, especially when a tank came rolling up and pointed its barrel at them and the soldiers with bayonets attached jumped over the fence and started running into the mob with, um, that was something to sort of observe, you know, and, and that was part of my growing up. Um, my father was, uh, you know, he was a Harvard graduate, um, a very excellent exegetical preacher. Um, but uh, though when I was young, I did respond to altar calls, wanting Jesus into my life. Uh, but I discovered early on that um, not everybody was as happy about that as I was. And my, you know, my school friends, Put a lot of pressure on me and I remember one day I made a terrible decision I said if being a Christian means that I lose all my friends then I don't want to be a Christian and that was the beginning of my downfall um, yeah I went back to the States for my university education um, and uh, I was not really a very nice person, really. I hate to go back into all of that, but um, I remember some folks saying uh, after I got saved, they said, what, Brad, saved? Uh, that can't be. He, he's too evil to get saved. Well, I had an argument with my dad um, about my girlfriend. And... Um, I, I was asking him, you know, what he thought of her, and, and he said, you know, you're just, you know, you, you, your life is a mess. And he said, when I was your age, I was married, I was having kids, and I was paying my own way through school, and, you know, and I just looked at him. I said, well, if I had the same opportunities at my age that you had at my age, then I could do it too, you know. And he got real quiet, and I thought, well, I won that argument and was pretty pleased with myself. And a few days later, he comes home and he says, um, the, and Brad, this is my junior year in college. And um, uh, he had moved back to the States. We were living together in West Virginia where uh, the uh, university paid not only my father, but paid for my tuition as well. So mm -hmm. I was getting a free ride. And, and uh, he said, Brad, I've, arranged for you to go preach at this little country church down the road here in in West Virginia. I said, preach? I said, I haven't been to church in years. He said, well, yeah, but you told me that if you had the same opportunities at, at your age that I had at your age, you could do it. And at your age, I was a preacher. And so I was stuck. And I figured, well, what am I going to do? Well, I've heard enough sermons from my dad, and I, I got out a... Uh, um, 
I asked him, you know, what is a sermon? He gave me all these books on, on hermeneutics, and I, I still haven't read them, so I, I don't know whether I'm a good preacher or not, but <laughs> the thing, thing was I found an article on the Lord's Supper, and I went down to this little church, and, uh, and I pounded it on the pulpit, and I pointed my finger. I'd, I'd been a thespian in, in school plays, and I'd seen plenty of Western movies with preachers in them, and so I figured this is what you do, and pointed my finger, raised my voice, and the search committee came up to me afterwards and said, you're our boy. And they hired me at $35 a week, which kept me in cigarettes and booze and gas money. And, and I became a preacher. <laughs> and I was preaching. I had to prepare a sermon every Sunday. So at some point, I had to read my Bible and come up with something to say to these people. And this went on for a year nice. until, uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it was crazy. Oh, but then, crazy. Uh, amazing. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> this, this uh, friend of mine, a, a girl from uh, Arizona who was studying nursing that I knew from Lebanon, um, her, her engagement fell through, and so I invited her to come visit me. And I go to the airport in Pittsburgh to pick her up. She comes off uh, the gate, and she comes into the airport, and she sees me, and she goes, praise the Lord. And I'm going, what? What's that? <laughs> And so I had to put on my religious face and try to pretend to be a pastor. And, and uh, she just wanted to talk about Jesus. And I thought, this is crazy. What happened to her? She said, well, I always thought I was a Christian, but I wasn't a Christian. I only got saved last week. And she just was talking about Jesus. And so I thought, well, I'll preach a great sermon on Sunday. And that will, that will you know, get her around and then I'll, you know, I'll, that, you just can't hold hands with a girl that just wants to keep talking about Jesus. And uh, she played the piano, sang a song. And afterwards, though I preached my best, everybody went up to her and thought she was marvelous and nobody mentioned my sermon. And we went out to eat lunch afterwards and um, I, I, she didn't even say anything about it. I said, finally, I said, listen, you know, what did you think about my sermon? She said, well, Brad, it was fine. It was good. The only thing is you need to get saved. And I thought, you don't tell the preacher that he needs to get saved. And so I, I started arguing with her and things just deteriorated between us. And by Tuesday, uh, I thought, you know, this girl's crazy. She's going to end up in an insane asylum if she doesn't, you know, I need to, I need to sort her out. And she's not going to listen to anything except the Bible. So I pulled out a Bible and a concordance, and I started looking up everything about wisdom and logic. And I said, you know, that's what's going to, uh, to, uh, to do the trick. And <laughs> I came across things like, uh, where is the wise man? Has not God made the wisdom of the world foolish <laughs> through mm. the foolishness of preaching to save those who would believe? And uh, I discovered I, I just didn't know God. And so I got down on my knees and I said, Lord, if it's true what's in here, then I, I want it. And mm. if it's not true, I'll burn the book and tell everybody it's a pack of lies. And uh, I prayed that night through. I prayed all my sins. I named them all. I named all the people I had hurt and offended. And I, 
I got up as it was morning, the sun was coming up and I stood at the window and I looked out and uh, I saw green grass and I saw a blue sky. And I thought, you know, I, I just met the originator of the color blue. I, I met the one who thought up what blue was like. Everybody else just copies what the originator came up with. And then it dawned on me that all my sins had been washed clean. Mm. And I felt like I'd taken a, a shower you know, on the inside. My yeah. guilt and my shame was gone. Mm. And that uh, was such a powerful experience. I went down for breakfast and saw the young lady. She took one look at me and said, you met Jesus last night, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I said, I sure did. <laughs> I sure did. Oh, I had no idea where that journey was going to take me, but I did say that night, I said, Lord, I'll go where you want me to go and I'll do whatever it is you want me to do. What was the next step? Where, where did you land up going after that? Because you, you went on several trips, didn't you, and then landed up in England? Well, uh, the first part uh, was interesting because I went and told my dad I had a dream that I was learning Greek. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to learn any more languages. I was fed up with that. And he didn't believe me when I said he'd been trying to get me to study Greek for quite a while because he taught right. Greek. You know? right. And I said, where can I go to learn Greek? And he called one of his friends uh, at a seminary in Boston, uh, Garden Conwell Theological Seminary. And so I went there and I uh, spent a year learning Greek and learning how to study the Bible and, mm. and uh, became a pastor of a church in, in Pennsylvania mm. and um, was rather happy um, just winning souls and God was doing some amazing things. Um, we had a pastor come through from, and in, in, in he seemed to have gifts of the spirit that I'd never experienced before. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine and I decided we were going to take a year, uh, uh, we're going to take a summer off and travel in Europe together and do some Bible study together and try to figure out what God wanted for us in our future. So I wrote to this fellow in England and I said, can I come and visit? And he said, well, um, I'm not going to be available because I'm busy, but I've arranged for you to preach at this farm up in Thursk. Uh, we did a tour in Germany and then through England and Scotland. And, and I took the train down after he flew back to the States. He actually went back and went to the same seminary. That's what God spoke to him about. That trip was critical for both of us. Mm -hmm. And I made contacts without knowing it in Heidelberg um, that was going to be crucial for my future. Um, but I was just out passing out tracks and ran across this uh, youth group that met on a side street somewhere. And um, uh, we just, you know, I thought that was interesting, but, you know, I, I never didn't think how that would impact my life. Uh, but we ended up going to uh, to Holly Bush, and the pastor was a farmer, and Jim Wilkinson met me off the train in North Allerton with his Wellington boots on and, and 
the first thing he did was take me to a pig auction. And I'm going, dear me, where have I landed? What is this place? <laughs> and, and we got into this, uh, uh, to, we got into the, the, uh, um, the, the, we went to a house group first, but they had a meeting on every night somewhere. There was a, it was a real revival center. I couldn't believe it. And uh, we met in the granary, and uh, there were maybe 120 folks showed up, packed the place out, and they would dance and shout and jump up and down. And uh, I mean, it was just, it was really, I hadn't experienced anything quite like that. Uh, they just loved Jesus. They were just uh, radically in love with Jesus. And uh, so they invited me to come back to their uh, family camp that they do every year. And, and I thought, well, that would be a great thing to, uh, to do. I, I'd love to go and, and be a part of that. Well, um, later that year, my mother came down with cancer. And there were a series of events that took place in 1976. Um, I, I, the, the young lady, by the way, that helped lead me to the Lord, um, she left. I saw her again last year for the first time. She yeah. found me on, uh, on the Internet, and she and her husband came to visit us here in North Carolina. I hadn't been in touch with her since so it was uh, it was quite a reunion uh, grateful reunion but i had um, fallen in love with a young lady in college who had become a christian and so we got engaged and a week before the wedding she told me she didn't love me anymore mm-hmm. and uh, my mother same week my mother died of cancer uh, my brother-in-law kicked me out of his house. He didn't want me to ever come back again. My father said that he wanted to mourn in peace and didn't want me to be around him. My uh, church didn't understand what I was going through, so I resigned as pastor of the church, sold what I had to pay off my debts, and in one week, I went from being a successful pastor to being homeless on the road with a Bible and a suitcase. Wow. And a hefty depression. Yes. <laughs> and uh, through a series of events, I ended up in Birmingham, Alabama, in a house group that thought it would be good if I um, became their pastor. And they paid for me to go to England to seek God on their behalf. And so I went to the family camp at Holly Bush, and I spent a month, um, first of all, at the camp preaching, and then I traveled around uh, the north of England and over to Ireland and did, uh, did some evangelistic work, um, heard from God for them and told them that I wasn't their man, and uh, I went out to Oregon to help take care of my grandparents. My grandfather had Alzheimer's and didn't remember who I was and was deteriorating. And so my father couldn't help, and so I did. I went out and helped for six months. And in the process, I realized that I needed to really repent of things that had hurt my life so deeply. 
and had a very dramatic um, encounter uh, of vision uh, where I met God and I just said, you know, knowing you is more important than anything else mm. in this world. And so um, I said, I just need to be restored. Mm. And in, the, in that process, um, there was a healing that took place in my life. Um, but I was still incredibly sensitive. Um, I, I had no confidence, um, though I knew that I had forgiveness and I had a foundation. Uh, I was getting up in the morning, writing down my prayers, doing my Bible study. Um, I had wonderful encounters with God. There was the depression had left me one day it, within a second when I heard the voice of Jesus speaking to me. Um, it was an incredibly powerful thing, but I knew I needed to be in the presence of people who just worshiped God. Mm. And so at Easter 1977, um, I went back to Holly Bush. I bought a one-way ticket. That was another series of miracles, how that money came together that I didn't have, and became an evangelist with the fellowship there uh, mm. for two years. And that that was... That was a foundation for my life. I didn't go to become a missionary. I went to be healed. I went to be restored. Um, I thought, you know, that God has a way. Because uh, my mother asked me once, don't you want to be a missionary, you know, preacher like your dad? And I said, no, I really don't. <laughs> you know? and, and so I had, I had no desire to become a missionary. And, and so here... Here I am in need, and the only church that was willing to invest in me and provide me with the framework within which I could be restored um, and be in this atmosphere of worship mm. was this church in North Yorkshire out on a field in a farm, you know. That's amazing. So but it there, is, isn't it? There, you started a storybook romance. I gather. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I, I was convinced I was going to have to live alone for the rest of my life because I'd messed up. And I, I told people, I said, if God were to take his finger and write somebody's name in the sky, um, I wouldn't be able to see it and read it. You know, there's no way that I could hear God uh, when it comes to uh, getting to know um, uh, another, you know, woman who could become my wife. Well, my wife, being more spiritual than I am, she um, she used to come down from concert to Holly Bush, you know, once a month for for some kind of uh, encouragement. She had been recently saved in, in a Baptist church, uh, and uh, uh, her husband died suddenly. Oh, wow. uh, in January of 1978 and uh, she was left alone with two boys and um, one day was praying and said uh, Lord uh, is it always going to be like this you know and the Lord spoke to her prophetically and said there are rivers between you but the gap is being bridged hmm. and she had no idea what that meant None whatsoever. She had no idea. So um, she was going to go visit her sister who lived upstate New York. 
uh, once uh, in the summer of 78. And before that happened, she came to Washington, the original Washington, uh, <laughs> up in England. And she went to Washington for a full gospel businessmen's meeting. And Jim Wilkinson, the pastor of Holly Bush, was the speaker. And he would always fill up the minibus with the rest of us who would tag along. And as usual, we were late. So we get there late, and she only knew me as Brad, having seen me at the front of the meeting. But I had to wear a name tag that had my name on it. And as we looked for places, we spread out to find places that were still open where we could sit. And I happened to sit at this table across from her with two of her other friends. And she said she was going to America to visit her sister. And I saw the ring on her finger and I said, well, what does your husband say about that if you're going to be gone so long? And she starts to cry. And her friends tap her on the hand and say, we're so sorry, but her husband has died. She's a widow. I apologized. But she noticed my name. And so she's uh, in in the States visiting her sister and they go shopping and they go across the Hudson River. And on the way back, the bridge over the Hudson River, it's a motorway, right. half of it was still being constructed. And so everything comes down to two lanes on the one bridge that was already there. The other part of the bridge was being built. And as she's coming across the bridge with her sister one way, there's a truck coming the other way with my name on it. It says Thurston. It's a trucking company up in New York. And she goes, oh, that's Brad's name. And then she gets back into her devotional time, and it dawned on her there are rivers between you. There's the Hudson River. <laughs> And the gap is being bridged, the bridge was being built. And there she meets this truck with my name on it coming to meet her in the middle of this bridge. She says, Lord, are you giving Brad as a husband? <laughs> and, and she was thrilled to bits. For nine months, she carried that in her heart without telling anybody. And uh, in, uh, at Easter time in 1979, Holly Bush had built, uh, turned a new barn into a church building. First time since John Wesley that they'd done that. And uh, they were going to have a celebration. And during that celebration, she had been praying. She said, Lord, something's got to happen. Uh, something's got to happen on this uh, weekend. Otherwise, you've got to take this away from me. I can't stand it anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, she told her son, this is interesting. She told her son, oldest son, Mark, she said, I want you to know you're going to have a new daddy, and his name is Brad. You haven't to tell anybody because he doesn't know yet. But, um, you, you know, this is our secret. Don't tell your brother. This is just for us because when it happens, it's going to happen fast, and I want you to be ready for it. Well, I'm sitting up on the platform, and I'm looking out over all the people that have packed into the uh, – to the meeting, to the celebration, and I see this boy staring at me. I'm going, why is he staring at me? What, what's with him, you know? And uh, um, we had a break after the first meeting that afternoon before the evening meeting, and, 
And uh, I was talking with the assistant pastor and, and uh, telling him some of the issues that I was struggling with, with the youth work there at, uh, at the church. And he says, come with me. He gets in the car. His wife jumps into the back end of the car, into the back seat. And we go driving out somewhere else. And I'm gone. So Jan doesn't see me. Her friends don't see me. Nobody sees me. She had told her two friends to pray um, because, you know, this was the weekend that God was going to do something. And I, I'm, I'm talking with, with Eddie, and Eddie says, Brad, you need, you know what you need? You need a wife. I said, don't you get on to me. Everybody's trying to get me linked up with their daughter. Please, you know, you're supposed to be my friend. And Shirley's sitting in the back seat. And she had been there when I had met uh, Jan and been introduced to her boys at, you know, before the meeting. She says, not only that, but I know who you're supposed to marry. I go, oh, not you too, Shirley. You know? and, and he says, we've not talked about this, but I know who she's talking about. She's absolutely right. And you have to change your, your, your theology. And... Uh, I said, listen, you know, if God writes her, somebody's name in the clouds, I, I couldn't read it. You know, I, I am so dense. Nothing could be clear. And they said, well, you know, you've always said you had to go back and marry somebody from amongst your own people, but that's not it, you know. And uh, I, I thought, I looked at him. I said, you're talking about Janet Bell, aren't you? And Shirley said, what could be clearer than a bell? <laughs> I, said, I said, listen, I am not going to do a thing, not a thing. But if God arranges it, I, I, just because I honor you, I'll, I'll, ask, I'll, I'll ask if I can go visit her. And we get back to the meeting, and the meeting has started. And so neither of us can go in and get up on the platform. And so I'm sitting outside looking through a door. And it's getting cold and it's dark. And so I decide I'm going to get a cup of tea and go back to my bungalow where I was staying. And uh, this was just a crazy event. And I'm in the little cafe having this cup of tea. And the door opens and in walks Jan. And she asks the lady, Dorcas, who's there, she, he says, have you seen my son Daniel and she said no I said well I have he was out playing and he came over and sat on my knee and uh, and so I know where he's at so I'll show you where he is so I take her out and show her Daniel and Daniel says I want a drink and she said well I left my purse back in the meeting so I don't have anything he says well he knows where to get me a drink and so we walk over to the water fountain and he gets a drink and then he's off again playing in the barn in the hay, and I'm there's maybe 400 people there, and I'm alone with this lady. <laughs> and remember what I promised Eddie. So I said, Is it all right if I come and visit you? And she nearly she just stares at me, goes, I would love that. <laughs> and I went, What did I do to this woman? You know, I, I, I just asked if I could come see her. What, what, what's so special about that? And uh, 
and her friends on the inside were, were getting desperate. Where's Brad? He's not here. What's going to happen if, if he doesn't show up, if nothing takes place, you know? So she goes back into the meeting and says it happened to the girl. So I just saw him outside and, and he's asked me out. <laughs> and uh, so the next weekend, um, I make my way over and we spend the afternoon together and uh, uh, we sit down, I help put the boys to bed and, and we sit down to eat. And that whole week, God had been speaking to me about uh, the importance of caring for widows and orphans. And I don't know, he just, he, he, he just showered me with visions that I'd had for eight years to prepare me to become a husband and a father the at the same time. Right. And so um, I, I, by the Wednesday, I called Eddie. I said, Eddie, what happens if this girl won't marry me? I said, I can't stand going through another broken engagement. This yeah. is, not, I can't do that. He said, don't worry, she'll marry you. She'll marry you. It's okay. <laughs> and I said, how do you know? Have you talked to her? He said, no, I haven't, but she'll marry you. Relax. <laughs> so we get up, I'm up there on this Monday night and, uh, and I'm, uh, this, this is just, this is the short version of this story. Okay. <laughs> and so we say a prayer at, over the meal. And she picks up her knife and fork and she starts to shake and she just puts it down. She says, Brad Thurston, why have you come here? And I said, well, I came to ask you to marry me. <laughs> <laughs> she said, yes, please. <laughs> and then she says, I've got a story to tell you. Come over here. We never ate that dinner. We went over to the couch and she sat down in my arms and told me the story of how for nine months God had been preparing her to become a pastor's wife, taking her through visions and dreams and, and uh, how our first uh, child was going to be a daughter. And I mean, matched with the same things that God had shown me for eight years, I just sat there dumbfounded that, mm -hmm. that God could actually work some miracle like this at all. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we decided there was no need to wait, and uh, we got married at Pentecost six weeks later. And uh, so that was uh, a whirlwind romance. The interesting thing is the next morning, Mark came down for breakfast, and she, he said, Mommy, does, does Brad know he's going to be my daddy now? <laughs> and she said, yes, he does. <laughs> Yeah, we we moved from Hollybush at that point uh, to Scotland for two years. Knew we were going to be there for two years. Worked with the church uh, in Kilmacombe outside of Glasgow. And uh, Jan is Scottish. Um, yeah, I came from Fife. So. That's lovely. So then, um, I mean, this is another whole chapter opening up. Then you, you moved to Germany quite soon after that, did you not? Uh, well, we did. Um, Jan basically, after our honeymoon, said she had never wanted to go back to Germany because oh. the people were so unfriendly. Oh. And you'd look out at the mass of people in a meeting and they just sort of stare at you, you know. And, and they didn't have any worship and all they ate was bread and sausage and sausage and bread. And, had bread for breakfast and bread for supper. And, you know, she just said, uh, you know, 
you can go all you want and minister and that's fine. And we were there in Scotland and, and uh, God had sort of expanded uh, the ministry. I had been to East Africa. I continued to minister in Germany um, as I had since I arrived in Germany back in 1977. Uh, I had linked up with that church in Heidelberg and I had preached at a crusade, a tent crusade in the city of Ludwigshafen, met a young man who started to organize my travels throughout Germany to various churches. Mm. And um, so I, I, I had quite an evangelistic outreach in Germany at the time. And uh, I had been invited to do a youth camp for two weeks in the Harz region of Germany. Um, and uh, the young man came to me and said, Brad, we need to get together and start a ministry together here in Germany. And I said, no, I kept saying no to him. And finally, to get him to stop bugging me, I said, listen, if God calls my wife, then we'll come. And I knew that was an impossibility, you know, that, you know, there's no way that this would happen. And so um, uh, Mark and I were at this youth camp. And one morning, uh, it was the same time that Hollybush had their camp. So Jan had gone down from Scotland to spend the week at Hollybush with Daniel. And there was this phone call. And I immediately got nervous. I thought something terrible is wrong because you can't afford phone calls in those days you know especially mm. international calls and so I ran to the phone left the, the meeting that I was teaching at ran to the phone I said sweetheart is everything all right she said Brad you're not going to believe what happened I said I, w- I was in the meeting last night and the preacher was preaching and he, he stopped in the middle of his sermon and he says I'm calling you I'm calling you to leave the land of your birth, the place where you never found satisfaction in me. I'm calling you to leave that, to go to a foreign country like Abraham did, uh, to go to a place where they speak another language and it's another culture, to a place where your husband now is. And I think I shouted no so loudly that she could have heard me without the telephone. I said, Jan, I just told Hayo a couple of days ago that if God calls you to Germany, that we would move here. Oh. <laughs> I said, you, you, you can't do this to us. <laughs> you know, this, you, this is impossible. But it was so clear mm-hmm. that uh, we... Uh, we made arrangements for her and Daniel to fly in, and we spent time right after that to set up the beginning of a ministry of evangelism and church planting in Germany. Now, none of this, believe it or not, did it, in all of this event from 77 till 81, when we moved to Germany uh, to start this work, I had been living by faith the whole time. I I had no source of regular income. And I had to trust God for myself. I Mm -hmm. learned how that functioned. And then I had to trust God for a family and how that functioned. And God 
provided for us on a daily basis to meet our needs um, amazingly. But the, the problem here was that um, I, I, I never considered the fact that I could even be a missionary. Never thought of it, never entered my mind. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm so doing this. I'm training as such. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I just, <laughs> I'm doing this. Like us. <laughs> uh, I end up in Germany. I'm going through culture shock. Uh, it hit me in a bank one day. I'm sitting in the bank, and though I spoke the language, I couldn't understand their banking system. Right. It didn't make sense to me. And I'm, I'm just, I, I sat down, and I wanted to cry. I just wanted to shout and cry. I was falling apart. I figured, how do you survive in this country? I... I I, I, my, my school German was not adequate to help me with insurance and taxes, and, and I didn't understand their social system. I didn't understand anything. I mean, it's so radically different to mm. both the UK and America. Well, at least I could speak English when I was in Britain, and I could learn stuff like how to drive on the other side of the road. It wasn't, it mm. wasn't a drastic change. But my wife and my sons, and now we had a new baby, uh, the daughter that God had promised us both, and, and, and none of them knew German. And so I'm having to translate for her and go to the store with her and go to the doctor's office with her and try to start a ministry and then try to learn how to, I mean, I was just floored by the, by the overwhelmed with uh, the responsibilities uh, that had come. Well, you both had a strong sense of calling then for the, to be there. We, we did. I didn't understand it as that. Mm. That's the whole point. Mm. I, I was being me who God had called me to be when I got saved. Mm. And uh, that was, I, I was called to preach and to heal the sick. And I didn't fully understand that either. Um, so, you know, I mean, I was growing in, in that, what that meant, uh, what does it mean to be healed? To, to, at first I thought it just meant praying for people who had one leg shorter than the other or praying for headaches. Uh, I did learn to pray for people with malaria and babies who had malaria and dysentery and, you know, I, that was fun. I, I've, Finally saw a man get out of a wheelchair. That was fun. I, it was it was faith building. But God's talking about much more when He talks about healing. He doesn't just talk about individuals. He talks mm. about whole churches being healed. He talks about nations being healed. He talks about healing that takes place within the wholeness of a person who needs to be restored, who's been broken by every kind of sin, and and so the the. The understanding of a call is something that I had to grow into over time. Right. Now, the, the interesting thing about all of this was um, the foundation for the ministry that God was calling us to. And, and, and again, I had, we had been in Germany about four years before I realized that maybe I was a missionary and that maybe I needed a missions agency to to help us out, <laughs> that I couldn't do it on my own. You know, I mean, those were things that 
sort of dawned on me at one point, you know, that I need somebody to manage my finances, to be accountable to. I need people to give me clarity of advice and some teaching that some of the stuff that I knew inherently because I'd grown up in Lebanon was helping me, but I didn't understand everything that was going on in my life. And so I I needed that kind of help. But we were on a a trip to Germany back in 1979. And and God showed us on, on board a ship from Hull to the Hook of Holland that, um, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, let, let me just read that because this is a powerful uh, scripture. And this became the foundation of the work that we started in Germany. Um, it says uh, here, verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. And wrapped up in this scripture was a vision that we had for doing evangelistic work in the Ruhr Valley of Germany. That is the place of converging and diverging people groups. People from all over the world come to live within that condensed area. And it's like the crossroads of Europe. If you put a map of Europe out as we did, we saw that this section of Germany was in the middle of Europe, and it had everything that was necessary for cross-cultural ministry. And so we went around to the various youth groups, sharing these scriptures, talks about reproduction, multiplication that happens. So when Paul got to Acacia, he didn't need to tell the people there anything because it had already happened after he'd only spent two weeks in Thessalonica. And the transformation in the people there had been so radical that they had taken that in the boats ahead of him arriving in Acacia. They had already shared the gospel there. Um, And so we realized that a world mission would begin if we did that work in the Ruhr Valley. And we we were having great success. People were getting excited about wanting to go out on the streets and do outreach and, you know, young people really, you know, ready to go. Uh, Let's do a radical for Jesus. Uh, Until the last meeting in uh, church and a fellow stood up and said, listen, uh, Billy Graham came here, told us what to do. We did it. It didn't work. Yongi Cho came here, told us what to do. We did it. It didn't work. You come here telling us what to do. It's not going to work either. And I said, oh, ye of little faith. He says, no, what we need is somebody to come here and to show us how it's done. And I got mad at him because of his lack of faith. And I realized that my anger didn't allow me to forget what he had said. 
and that maybe God was talking to me. And I started arguing with God. I said, who am I? I don't have the experience. I don't have the knowledge. I don't have the education. I don't have anything. Who am I to go and show them how to do anything? You know, I can go be a part of things with them, but I'm, I'm, I'm Mr. Nobody here, you know, I'm, I'm this poor broken guy. I came to the mission field because I was broken, not because I had a call. Um, who am I to do this? But that became the foundation when we started our work in, in Germany of evangelism and church planting. We wanted to plant missions-minded churches that would start to be involved in sending missionaries out. Mm. Now that happened for about 10 years and I traveled throughout um, Germany um, doing evangelistic outreach and helping churches get started um, throughout those 10 years, uh, not just in our own area where we started a couple of churches. The important thing there is that I had these 10 years of building towards something that I didn't realize that God was doing. Mm. Um, again, I, I am following the leading of the Spirit, not realizing that I'm being prepared for something that I wasn't aware of. Well, not only in that time did we join up with a missions agency in Pensacola, Florida, which was, it, it was a lifesaver for us because we were under such stress financially. Um, and people had forgotten about us. People just didn't think about sending us support. And I, I remember crying out to God about that. And, and I finally called a friend. I said, I don't know what to do. He said, well, I'll introduce you to this uh, missions director. And we became very good friends. Well, in, in all of that, in 1989, there was uh, in September, a meeting of intercessors for Germany in Frankfurt. And we were part of the leadership team. Hayo and I were both part of the leadership team that met there. And we started to discuss ahead of time, before all the participants came, what the direction was going to be for this uh, prayer uh, event. And we said, well, we've got to pray for the wall to come down, for Cescu to be removed in Romania, for Honecker to be removed in East Germany, for Germany to be reunited for people to be ready to handle the financial stress of that. All that has to happen. And so I thought, well, I'll pray for that, but I'm not going to put that in my newsletter because a unified Germany could become very powerful. I don't know that the Americans would be too happy about that. And so we're, <laughs> you know, we're, we're sitting there uh, praying for all this. And uh, one particular meeting at night, the international director, Johannes Fazius for Intercessors International, uh, gave a tremendous uh, message on missions and a call for missions. About half of the congregation that was there, maybe 300 to 350 people, moved to the front to say that they would dedicate their lives to missionary service. The uh, YWAM leader uh, at the time in Germany, got up, gave them five things that they had to do to prepare for missions. And I thought it was brilliant. And I was taking notes, but I figured, you know, they're not going to take notes. And by the time they get back to their seats, they will have forgotten all five things, you know, that, that they're not going to remember that. And uh, 
then they said something like, we're praying for 5,000 new missionaries to be sent out of Germany. Now that was double what was already present. In, you know, Germany already had about 2,500 missionaries out on the field with all mission agencies. Mm. And I knew that all the mission agencies were full, that they had no more resources to send out more. So I, I went to the director of intercessors for Germany and I said to him, I said, you know, that's really easy for you to stand up there and prophesy 5,000 new missionaries when we don't have the structures that are going to be there to send missionaries. We haven't got the churches that are going to support missionaries. They don't have any interest in missionary work. How are you going to fulfill this? I mean, it's just, a pie-in-the-sky illusion if you don't have the structures and the means to actually send the missionaries. And then you end up with these 300 folks that come forward, and, and maybe 10% of those are going to go. And of those 10%, maybe only 50% of them will actually last beyond their first uh, home leave. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, this is, this is absolutely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You, you can't you can't uh, do that kind of a, uh, say those kinds of things. And he just looked at me and he said, well, Brad, I guess you know what you have to do. <laughs> and I, I got mad at him. It's amazing how when you get upset with somebody, you don't forget what they say. And that's the way that God uses that in my life. Right. And I struggled with that until I finally gave in. And I talked with my missions director and he said, I'll give you all the resources we have. You can use that. And I, I liked their philosophy of missions because it was going to allow us to have no limit to the amount of money that we could both raise or the number of missionaries we could raise. And people told me it would be impossible to do in Germany. And I got a good lawyer to help me draw up the paperwork for that, ran everything through the finance government and everything. And I got all the leaders, mission leaders in Germany that I knew together in a room. And I said, this is what I plan to do. Is there a need for it um, in Germany? Is there a room for it here in Germany? And the interesting thing was that all but one said yes. And the one guy who said no came to our 10th anniversary and apologized and said, you know, I, I, thought we didn't need anything that churches could do all this on their own Mm. but we have experienced even with the size we're a large church that on the mission field we really needed agencies there to help us too Um, and so what started off in our living room um, continued to grow I know that we have over 140 missionaries out on the field right now. We've got a school running at the moment with uh, new candidates. Um, We're going to have three of those schools this year, uh, just this autumn. And uh, so that's going to be another uh, series of missionaries going out. We've had several who have been career missionaries that have been with us for the last 30 years. We started this in 1990, Mm -hmm. and uh, we have others that would come for a period of 7 to 15 years uh, and then came back and made a transition to another type of ministry. Um, But I I look back and uh, I'm thinking, my goodness, we have uh, actually trained and sent 
and supported and ministered alongside um, uh, several hundred that have gone to many different nations around the world. Um, and I spent quite a bit of time in the early days actually visiting them and, and ministering to them, caring for them on the mission field. If uh, you know there was a death in the family, then I would go and be there. If, if people struggled because of sin in their lives, I would go and help sort through that. And um, It's just been an amazing walk to be able to invest in the lives of a handful of people and see how God has blessed them far beyond anything that I personally could have imagined or could have done on my own. And then to see um, the success, and I just rejoice in the success of every single missionary who, right. whose life has been transformed as a result of what they have done on the mission field. That's beautiful. Um, Brad, thank yeah. you so much for sharing this. I think we're going to have to draw to a close, but I just want you to, I want to ask a bit more about, um, I mean, Globe Mission is the name of the agency, is that right? Correct. Yeah, and, um, I put on the shirt. Say it again. Say it again. I put on the shirt with the name on it so oh, you can yeah. see. Okay. <laughs> no, that was too small for my eyes to see. Uh, <laughs> um, so Globe Mission, and you've written some books, right, that are to do with this? Yeah, I, I have. Unfortunately, uh, my biography, which goes into a lot more depth, uh, is only in German. Uh, I do need to finish the uh, English version. Uh, I hope to do that before too long. Um, I've also written a small booklet. I kept it small on purpose because I want it to be read, but it's called A Guide to Missions. This is for uh, churches, church leaders, uh, mission directors in churches. How can a church become um, a missions-oriented church? Uh, and what are the kinds of things that are valuable and important that missionaries look for from churches? And it's helpful to missionaries, too, because then they get to use that as a backdrop to understand the churches that are partnering with them. Um, I'm in the process of getting my ideas sorted for another book on sending, which focuses both on the importance of the call and the importance of being sent and uh, the empowerment that has to happen in order for those two things to become reality within the life of a, of a missionary. Um, those are things that I'm, I'm working on right now, but uh, again, hopefully that's what this season in my life is about to provide uh, assistance and influence to those who are going to continue to do the work. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it's a great privilege for us to be partners with you as well in Field Partner. I know it's um, you know it's a bit tenuous, but I hope we can strengthen the links. And we uh, want to do that not just uh, personally, which is obviously a very strong link for me. I highly respect you and Ross and the ministry that you've been doing. Um, for a lifetime, um, I honor you. Uh, I respect you. Oh, thank you. Uh, but I'm I'm also interested very much in what you're trying to accomplish in terms of member care training and uh, other um, means of support for missionaries 
through a web, not just a web presence, but also using the means of, of the internet as, mm -hmm. uh, uh, as a possibility to coach people through difficult times. And that this is something that's going to spread to um, many nations, but just within the nations that you already touch, I think this is a powerful, powerful tool. And I, I'm, uh, I have approached the leaders of the uh, other agencies that we've helped start. We didn't just start one in Germany, but we started one in the UK and one in, in Switzerland and in Mexico and uh, most recently in Brazil. And as, as that network starts to expand and grow, we would like to see a partnership between the network, the GLOBE network and Field Partner because I'm really convinced that the things that you're doing are very valuable uh, in the community. Oh, that's great. That's, I mean, we, we value um, our own relationship with you and um, the history that you've brought in this, in this interview. Thank you so much for sharing so openly and sharing so fully um, your own journey because I think people need to hear that, that it's not just something that comes from the, from the sky but it works out in the fabric of our lives. So I think that's, that's right. yeah. been tremendously life affirming, I think, for, or for me, just hearing the, fu the fullness of the story, and I'm sure for others who will listen. So thanks so much for being with me uh, on this interview. And I just want to say, um, that's it for this one interview. Um, I know that it's given us a lot, lot of food for thought, but um, if you'd like to see this again and then other interviews, um, please go to fieldpartner.org and find out more. And um, find out more about Brad's work too by visiting the links that we'll put below. Please like, like our Facebook page and subscribe to our newsletters to stay up to date with all our news. But that's it for today. And I look forward to seeing you in the next interview. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Field Partner. You can watch or listen to more interviews by subscribing to this channel our YouTube channel or our Facebook page. For free cross-cultural mission courses, blogs, sermons and other resources, visit our website fieldpartner.org.